So a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel with a group uh, from seminary when I graduated, and we took a trip, about a 10-day trip over to Israel, and saw all of the kind of just amazing sites and places where a lot of the events and things occurred in Scripture that we read about. And we went up to Galilee, saw different places that Jesus ministered, and so uh, it was just an incredible experience. But one thing I found that when we went over there is that there's a lot of different places and different people who like to claim that a certain place was the exact place where Jesus did X, Y, or Z. Um, this is the place where he sat and gave the Sermon on the Mount. This is the place where we know he rose from the dead. So there's actually multiple different tombs in Jerusalem that all claim to be the one that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what they're trying to do is appeal to that kind of emotion within mostly Christians, but others who come and visit of like, we can attach ourselves in some physical kind of way to know that Jesus is indeed real to us. And we think that will appeal to people. Uh, and, And through the years, there's been a lot of different ways that Christians have done this. There was at one point in time, there was a a really powerful woman who claimed that she had found the cross of Jesus, the literal wood that was used. And so people would kind of flock to where she said she had that on display to see like, oh, this is the cross of Jesus. How wonderful. There were others. I don't know if you remember several years back that piece of clothing that was found called the Shroud of Turin that they said this has the image of Jesus on it. And people were going and and almost in some sense, like almost kind of worshiping this thing. Obviously, we know. Indiana Jones and the quest for the Holy Grail, right? Like if we could just find this cup that Jesus drank from, then we will know for sure that that things are true or that this is special or whatever it may be. There there is this tendency in the human mind, especially for followers of Jesus, to want to attach ourselves to something to say, this is how we know Jesus is real. And it's interesting, there's a a quote that I want to read to you from Someone at several hundred years ago, he was thinking about this idea, and I want you to listen to what it says. It says, if someone exhibited a print made by the feet of Jesus, so if someone had the footprints of Jesus, how we Christians would prostrate ourselves and how we would adore it. If someone displayed the tunic of Christ, would we not fly to the ends of the earth to kiss it? But even if you were to produce every possession that Jesus owned, there is nothing that would show Christ more clearly and more truly than the written Gospels. Through our love of Christ, we enrich a statue of wood or stone with jewels and gold. Why do we not rather adorn these books with gold and jewels and anything more precious? For they recall Christ to us more vividly than any little statue. Statue shows only the appearance of his body, if indeed it shows anything of that. But these books show you the living image of his holy mind and Christ himself. Speaking, healing, dying, rising to life again. In short, they restore Christ to us so completely and so vividly that you would see him less 
clearly should you behold him standing before your eyes. This is, in fact, what Jesus said to his disciples when he was about to go to the cross, that it is better if I leave you because then the Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. And so the point that is being made and the point that I want you all to see here is that what we have in front of us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, specifically Mark, is the clearest, most perfect depiction of the person of Christ that there ever could exist in this life. That when you open the pages of these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the person of Jesus, more clearly than anywhere else. And so... If you needed any other reason why we'd spend a long time in the Gospels, hopefully that can be it. All right, so let's look together. Book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Mark 1, 1 to 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together one more time. Lord, I pray that you would do exactly as you have promised, that you would make your word come alive to us this morning. Give us understanding so that we can see the truth that is contained in these eight verses. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the gospel according to Mark, and it would be helpful just briefly if I gave a word to you about who Mark was. It's understood that Mark is elsewhere referred to in the New Testament as John Mark. He was a companion of Paul, and for our purposes, what's important to know is that John Mark was a companion of Peter. We read of him traveling with Peter in the book of Acts, and then Peter himself in 1 Peter 5, 13, refers to Mark as his son. So Mark and Peter were very close, and so it's most likely that Mark's gospel is the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter. John Mark was not a disciple. He was not probably an eyewitness of Jesus, but he relied heavily on Peter's account to build out his gospel. So the gospel of Mark that you have in front of you is not several hundred years or generations removed from Jesus. It is 
the direct account of an eyewitness, Peter, who was, which we know, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. As we walk through this gospel, you'll see that Peter plays a prominent role here like he does in other gospels. But there's also certain stories in Mark that are told from the vantage point of Peter that he himself must have Communicated, And so John Mark wrote this gospel a few decades after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. He recorded it, wrote it down. And Mark actually wrote this gospel around the time when Christians were increasingly beginning to be persecuted by the Roman government. And so it's no surprise that the Jesus that Mark gives us is pictured as a suffering servant. Mark lays a heavy emphasis on Jesus' role as a servant. Mark 10.45 is kind of the theme verse for the entire book, if you want. Mark 10.45, which says, The Son of Man, this is Jesus talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the suffering servant-like nature of Jesus is, is at the core of Mark's Gospel, but so is Jesus' authority. Mark loves to talk about Jesus' authority over disease and sickness, over demons, and even over death. Mark doesn't have as many of Jesus' teachings as he has tons of his healings and his miracles and things that he does that he wants to give us. Mark is often believed to be the first gospel to be written, it's the shortest. It's likely that it was written first, and then Matthew and Luke kind of expanded on Mark's account a little bit, added in details, and then John came in a little bit later and wrote his wonderful picture of Jesus. And so the gospel accounts were almost like a symphony where you have these different musical instruments each playing their own part, but together they form this one beautiful piece of music. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each kind of have their own tune, so to speak, but together they give us this full picture of Jesus. And so we're going to be focusing specifically on Mark. Now you'll notice the beginning in verse 1, Mark's gospel doesn't start out with any long genealogy like Matthew does. He doesn't begin with the birth narrative like Luke does. Mark actually skips all of that and just gets straight to the action. He's like the opening scene of a James Bond movie in some ways. Mark is just concerned with getting straight to the point. And so he tells us in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he wants to be very clear up front about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the one who brings the gospel, the good news. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the people of God have been waiting for. And he is the son of God, that he bears the divine image of God like no one else does. And readers of Mark would have also noticed something else about the beginning of his gospel, verse 1. You see, a few years before Jesus was born, when Augustus was the emperor over Rome, on his birthday, there was a calendar that was made in like praise to Augustus. In the beginning of that calendar, on his birthday, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Augustus Caesar. Good news, it calls him the Savior of the world. And Mark is making a profound point by starting his gospel that way. He's saying that there is no emperor or ruler on earth who can claim to bring good news like Jesus does. 
that others may conquer by the sword or by their human might, but Jesus is going to conquer by a different kind of way. So even right then, he's pushing the limits a little bit to say our allegiance as followers of Jesus is to him and to him alone. We respect government and authority, but we do not worship it. And so he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what I want to tell you, what I want to be kind of the main theme for our sermon this morning is this. What the prophets predicted, what John preaches, and what Jesus provides is this. God has come to us so that we might come to him. What the prophets predicted, what John preaches, and what Jesus provides is this, that God has come to us so that we might come to him. So what did the prophets predict? Well, look at the quote there in verse 2, right? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And that primarily is from Isaiah chapter 40. That's what Mark identifies. That's what Jean Ann just read earlier, right? That wonderful passage in Isaiah 40 that he's going to send a messenger who is going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. And he's going to announce that the Lord is coming to bring comfort to his people, to rescue them, that the Lord is a deliverer. There's actually a couple other passages in the Old Testament that Mark could also be drawing on here. He only mentions Isaiah, but sometimes gospel writers will mention something and then they have other things in mind as well. And, and, and there's two other passages. It's actually quite brilliant what Mark is doing. One of them is Exodus 23, verses 20 to 22. And in that passage, the Lord says, I'm going to send a messenger who's going to bring you, the people of Israel who are in the wilderness into the promised land and I'm going to protect and guide and lead you from the wilderness to the promised land and then the third passage that he may have in mind comes in Malachi chapter 3 the very last prophet of the Old Testament where again a messenger is going to come to prepare the way and he's actually going to announce that the Lord is going to come to purify his people. He's going to interrupt their lives. He's going to consume what is wicked in them, and he's going to refine them like gold and purify them. He's going to be a judge, if you will. And so Mark is bringing these three different streams together, and he's saying that, Jesus is going to be the one to come and to fulfill each of these in his own unique way. That all the lines that are coming from the Old Testament to the New are going to reach a single point in the person of Jesus. That he is going to lead God's people into the promised land. That he is going to deliver us from our sins and that he is going to purify us and refine us as a good and righteous king. But he's not going to come unannounced, right? People are going to be told that they need to get ready. And so we read in verse 4 that John appeared. So that was what the prophets predicted, all right? 
So now here is what John preached. And we'll spend the most of our time here. Here's what John preached. Look at verse four. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So John is preaching sermons and John is performing baptisms. This is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who we read about in Luke's gospel, that he's out in the wilderness doing these things. He, so he has this ministry. And then, of course, in verse 6, we have this mention of the clothing he wears and the food he eats, which is kind of strange. The Bible doesn't mention that about Jesus. And so what is it saying? Well, the prophets of the Old Testament wore clothes like this. Elijah is described as wearing clothes like this and eating similar things. And so what Mark is identifying John the Baptist with He's identifying him with these Old Testament prophets who proclaimed that the Lord would one day come and visit his people. So John is, if you will, the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's preaching a message similar to theirs of repentance, confession of sins, and all these different things. So that's what his sermons were about. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And even though many centuries have passed since other prophets were ministering in Israel, it's evident as we open up Mark's gospel that the people of God are still in the exact same place. They are spiritually sick. That they are a people who are in need of revival. Now you notice that these people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. So they were Jewish people who probably were assuming that they were just okay with God. After all, they had been born in the right family lineage. They were being raised under the instructions of the Bible. They had parents probably who taught them the Bible. They were surrounded by people who knew these things. And they probably assumed that they were right with God just by virtue of all these other things in their life. And what is John telling them? You are not right with God because of where you were born, how you were raised, where you can trace your family lineage to, whether or not your great-grandfather was the rabbi of this synagogue, doesn't matter. There is one and only one qualification to be made right with God, and that begins with repentance and evidently people were listening to his message right because all the people from these lands many of them were coming out to john and they were being baptized by him they were confessing their sins now the way this is written it implies that they were confessing their sins out in the open probably to one another like verbally saying these are sins that i have committed you you can picture like Husbands maybe confessing sins to their wives because they're so convicted by the message that John preached. 
friends are confessing their sins to one another, children to parents. I mean, this sounds kind of weird to us if we picture it, right? But all these people are just forgetting the fact that I I don't need to save face. I need to confess ways that I have wronged my neighbor and ways that I have not worshipped and served God as I should. Because that is how this man is telling me I need to prepare for the Lord's arrival. So perhaps people were bringing secret hidden sins into the light. Perhaps they were acknowledging sins that everybody else around them knew that they had in their life, that they just had not yet come to the place where they were ready to do that. But people were freely and openly confessing their sins before one another and ultimately before God. And here's what you need to know this morning. This message is not unique to John. Next week, we'll see how Jesus, the gospel he preached, says repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance is not something that just John preached. It was something that Jesus also preached. But the fundamental truth that we need to see in light of that is the first step to restoring a relationship with God that was lost is by repenting or turning from sin. That people who need to experience revival spiritually are people who need to know what repentance is personally. John is making that profound truth and it's teaching God's people how we come to him. It begins with repentance. One of the most remarkable stories in the past 100, 150 years about the spread of the Christian faith in a single country occurred in Korea. Some of you may be familiar with this, but around the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, in about 1900 in Korea, there were very few Christians, hardly any churches, remotely any gospel witness that was going on in Korea at the time. It was difficult to be a Christian there. But then if you fast forward about 70 years, in 1973, when Billy Graham went and preached in Seoul, South Korea, he had his largest audience of people to ever listen to him preach. About 1.1 million people in person gathered to hear somebody preach. So what happened between 1900 and 1973 to have that kind of extreme gospel growth? Well, it's actually interesting because in Korea, you can trace a lot of what happened to a single evening in 1907, where the church, as I mentioned, was in a a very small and kind of um, difficult period in its history. They were occupied by Japanese at the time, so they weren't governing themselves. And so there was division in the church on how should we respond to this outside power who is kind of governing over us. So you had pastors arguing with each other. You had different sins going on within the churches in Korea. And so there were some missionaries who had been there for some time, and and they had planned this prayer gathering that they were going to have in one evening in, in 1907. So they thought to us, okay, we're uncertain about the future. We don't know what it's going to look like. So let's just gather together and let's have a time of praying. And so hundreds of pastors 
church leaders, missionaries all gathered together on this evening in 1907. And one of those missionaries leading up to that night, listen to what he said. He said, that night we knew was going to be very different. Every person, as they entered the church, they could feel a sense of God's presence in that place. And after a short sermon, one of the Korean pastors took charge of the time of prayer that was to come after that, and his name was Mr. Lee. And so Mr. Lee said, if you want to pray, if you have something that you would like to offer up to God in prayer, let's just begin praying together. And so out loud, all of these people just began praying together. And he says, as the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. And then listen to what one pastor who was there said of that night. He said, as that prayer meeting continued, man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. My own cook, he says, tried to make a confession. He broke down in the midst of it and cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? Then he threw himself on the floor and wept and wept. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of people praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. And so that meeting went on till about 2 a.m. with confession and praying and weeping. And in the months that followed, as they looked back on that meeting, they said the whole church we felt that night was washed and made clean and sweet and new. When we met to organize later in that fall, not a word was heard about fighting in the church. Only a great desire to pray and preach the gospel as soon as possible to Korea and in God's will to China and Japan. And in the years that followed, persecution intensified, but the church in Korea grew exponentially. As they continued to reflect, they came to the same exact point that John himself was preaching here. That all true revival within God's people begins when there is a true sense of repentance within God's people. This is true on the corporate level for everybody, but it's also true on the personal level. If you're the kind of person who prays prayers like, Lord, will you just ignite in me a fire for you? I I feel like I've lost it. If you want to pray that prayer Also pray the prayer, Lord, is there any sin that I am harboring or hiding in my life that would prevent me from being used to the fullest extent so that I can glorify you? If we want to know what revival is like, if we want to experience spiritual life, then we must also know what it means to repent. What it means to give up on ourselves and our sin and to turn to God in faith. Look, here's the thing, too. Everything in our world wants to shout, here are all the ways that you have wronged me. Now you need to pay for it. 
everything in the Christian faith in Mark 1 and everywhere else teaches, here are the ways that I have wronged you. If your brother or sister in Christ, will you forgive me for Jesus' sake? The word of God always places the burden of responsibility for sin on the people of God. And so that's the message that John was preaching and that people were hearing. But remember, John's message was only a message of preparation. That he could preach and announce forgiveness, but he could not fully give it himself. And so that's where he goes in verses 7 and 8, right? John preached saying, after me, so I'm not the one who is to come, but after me, there's coming another one who is mightier than I am, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here's what Jesus provides. Jesus provides one who is mightier than John. Jesus is mighty and Jesus provides mercy where John could not. So he says he is mightier than I am. And then John compares himself to a servant. So when someone would enter into a house, it was a servant or a slave who would go up to them and bend down and untie their sandals, take them off, clean their feet. John says, I am not even worthy to do that task for the one who is coming. That is how great and how glorious he is. John always was wanting to point people to others. Elsewhere, he says, hey, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Only Jesus can provide what John was pointing people to. And then verse 8, he says that the baptism that Jesus brings is going to be of a different quality than the baptism that John brings. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a bit of confusion around this term. What does it mean to say that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit? Without diving into every detail of this discussion, just let me suffice it to say for us this morning that to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be converted. These are not two separate things, all right? So when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are converted to Christ so that the moment a person turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit now the Acts the book of Acts makes this point a little bit clearer I'll just give you a brief um, word from that in Acts 19 when the Apostle Paul is going around he meets some people who were disciples of John And he is talking with them and he asks the disciples of John, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they respond and said, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And and then Paul asks, well, whose baptism did you receive? And they said, well, we, we only knew the baptism of John. He gave us a message of repentance, but we've never heard of a Holy Spirit. And so what does Paul do? He shares the gospel with them. They trust in Jesus and he baptizes them in the name of Jesus and then they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're converted and they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's what this term baptism with the Holy Spirit means. 
John's baptism with water, it was only a sign. It pointed beyond itself to a greater reality. In a similar way, the baptism that we do in the church with water, that is a sign that points to a spiritual reality. That for all those who have confessed their sins and turned to Jesus in faith, we then baptize them as a symbol that they have died to their sins, been raised to new life in Christ, and they have received the gift of the Spirit because of what Jesus has already done in their life. So the baptism of John is a sign, but the baptism of Jesus is the reality. John could preach about forgiveness, but Jesus alone could provide forgiveness. John could urge people to repent of their sins, but Jesus alone could empower and enable that repentance to happen. John could offer all these wonderful statements about Jesus, but only Jesus could bring the true and final fulfillment of what he was saying. And so Mark 1.8 sets the stage for the rest of the gospel of where we're going. That to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to have God come and to dwell within us. So as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper this morning, what a sweet reminder that is. That Jesus came to us, God in the flesh, so that we might come to him. And that the repentance that John preached is realized in the gospel message, right? That the gospel is good news for everyone who gives up on themselves and turns to Christ in faith. So if you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you are unsure about Christ and what he has done for you, then I'd ask that you would wait on taking the Lord's Supper with us. Ask instead that you would receive Jesus for yourself by faith. Christianity is the only religion that begins when you give up on yourself. Begins when you come to the end of yourself. And for those who are in Christ this morning, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for confession. If you are harboring any sin that you have not yet given over to the Lord, this is an opportunity for you to do that. It's an opportunity to be reminded again of the payment that Jesus made on your behalf, that if you are in Christ, you do not confess your sin hoping that God will one day forgive you. You can confess your sin with confidence that in Christ, that his blood is sufficient to cover over every wrong you have ever done. And so maybe that's where you are this morning, and maybe you would just offer simple prayers of confession and repentance to the Lord as we take the meal together, and then as we receive the assurance of pardon that God gives us. Would you pass these out for us, Scooter? Let me take one as well. As he passes these out, feel free to pray as you feel led, and then I will read the portion of Mark's gospel that leads us into the Lord's Supper.